thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. chapter 31 of the book of Genesis. If you brought your your Bible with you, please follow with me then in chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. In the mating season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the he-goats which leapt upon the flock were striped, spotted, and, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that leap upon the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go forth from this land, and return to the land of your birth. And Rachel and Leah answered him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has been using up the money given to us, given for us. All the property which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all his cattle and all his livestock which he had gained, the cattle in his possession which he had acquired in Padanaram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. 
He fled with all, with all that he had, and arose and, and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward his, the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Lebanon the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night, and said to him, Take heed that you say not a word to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen encamped in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have cheated me and carried away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and cheat me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Take heed that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of, your, of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two main servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddle and sat upon them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and upbraided Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Although you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your she-goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Of my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years I've served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up, and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made up a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and, my, and me today. Therefore he named it Galid, and the pillar Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me, 
when we were absent one from the other. If you will treat my daughters, and if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, remember, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread and tarried all night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he departed and returned home. All right. This is this chapter is the end of this whole uh, peripathy between Jacob and Laban. If you recall, Jacob had left his parents in haste, running away from his brother Esau, and now, on his way back, he is again leaving with haste, running away this time from Laban. So he fled on the way out, and he's fleeing on the way back. And there is much to be said about that. Let's go through this um, verse by verse. And again, consider it in light of our modern times. Our own life and the life of the church in general. There's much to be said here that applies to our own lives today. The first thing in verse 1 and 2 is, going back to verse 1 and 2, the triggering event is is effectively envy. Verse 1, the sons of Laban are saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. The intent here isn't jealousy. They're not saying, whoa, look at Jacob, how amazing he was, he has managed to become so rich. We should do the same thing. They're saying, he took what is ours, and we should dispossess him. That is envy. Hmm? Envy seeks always to take that which is that belongs to the other. Jealousy seeks to acquire that which belongs to the other. Envy is always sinful. Jealousy can be sinful and may not be sinful. And it's always the case that envy manages, as with most of our sins, to robe itself in a spirit of righteousness. We always manage to find a good reason why we say these things. We're always good at it. But we, what we don't realize when we do those things, whether in the heat of an argument, whether when we're de- debating with somebody and we absolutely want to win the argument no matter what, whether because we have deep-seated um, prejudice against others, what we don't realize and what should frighten us is that every word, every accusatory word we pronounce against others, which is ill-founded, is not forgotten. That word is kept, carefully remembered by the devil. So the day of our personal judgment, he will be there to accuse us with our own words. With every words we spoke out of turn towards another. Nothing's forgotten. We forget. And we think it doesn't matter. 
that we spoke harshly to our wife or, God forbid, to a priest. We don't even think twice about it. But they're not forgotten. They will be remembered on our day of judgment. And that is why Jesus admonished us and said, let your words be yes, yes, no, no. Everything else is from the evil one. And we don't spend much time thinking about what that really means. I'll give you an example. You are reading the news on some outlet, whether the newspaper, on TV, on the web. And you come up, up, across a, let's say, a marital situation or some situation that is really, that has turned sour and now is exposed. So-and-so had an affair with so-and-so, with and now it's all over. You read this thing, and then thoughtlessly, and I'm underlining that word, thoughtlessly, without much thought, you start a chat, you pick up the phone, or in a conversation, you bring this, this subject up, and you share it with others. And all of you are sharing this subject of conversation, heedless of the attack on the dignity of these people that you are right now doing. And five minutes later, the conversation is forgotten. But the devil did not forget. And our Lord did not forget. Why did you have this conversation in the first place? Was it for the greater glory of God? If it wasn't, what was it for? That's what we are all called to do. If nothing else, watch our tongue. Yes, yes. No, no. Next time around you come upon gossip, because this is what it is, meaning defamation of the reputation of others, you have this urge to share it with someone else, offer it up. Mortify yourself, offer up that urge, and say nothing, because nothing good will come out of it. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. First, Jacob notices that things are changing. But that's all Jacob did. He noticed that Laban is not regarding him with, 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 uh, with favor as before. He hasn't taken action. He hasn't said, okay, because he's doing this, I'm going to do that. Right? He has simply noticed. And God has noticed before him. God knows. And so the Lord intervenes and says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Notice, God doesn't say, Jacob, finally, what took you so long to notice how, Leah, how, how um, Laban is thinking about you? Now that you came to your senses, we can talk. Let me tell you what we're going to... He doesn't bring this up, does he? He doesn't. He, leave it, he leaves it completely aside. Why? Because it is not up to Jacob to judge Laban. It matters not in the end whether Laban is speaking ill or good of Jacob. That is not up to Jacob. That is up to God. That 
is the vehicle by which God is indicating his will to Jacob. Notice how this ill, this envy, this um, desire on the part of the sons of Laban, Laban himself, to acquire the possession of Jacob, which is an ill, God turns to a good. It is the prompting that Jacob needs to leave. So often in our life, things may not be going well economically. Trying to find a job, can't find a job. But what do we do? We persist. Or we're looking for a house. And we've already decided where we're going to live. And we look and we look and we look and we look. And we can't find a house. And why is it that we don't stop and say, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Is it you telling me this is not where I should be living? Do you have another plan for me? Because we are attached. You see? We are mostly attached to our own plans. We don't want to be poor of spirit. We want to have our own plans and do according to what we want to do. So often I meet a, a couple and I talk to them about children. And the wife is working. And they tell me, well, we can't because we, we can't make ends meet if my wife does not work. The implication is we can't make ends meet as long as we stay here. We can't make ends meet as long as we don't engage the Lord in the picture. You see? We get attached to our own ways. And heaven forbid that somebody tells us that otherwise. Not so with Jacob. Now, when God gave him this command, return to the land of your fathers, your kindred, and I will be with you, Jacob calls Rachel and Leah. Notice the wisdom. God simply told him what to do. God didn't tell him how to do it. And that's generally the rule. God will tell us what He wants from us. And most, in most instances, when we're facing a situation, we're trying to find out what we need to do, He will close a door, close another door, open a small window. And it may not look exactly like what we thought. We had other plans. He just told us what to do. But seldom will He tell us how to do it. That he leaves up to the Holy Spirit first, and then us. It's God's providence. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't say, okay, now I told you, go do it. He's going to be with us every step of the way through his Holy Spirit. And that is why it's so important. It's so important to really develop a profound, profound relationship with the Holy Spirit. Profound. As profound as we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to. You hear people talk about personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. At the same time, you have to have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because He is God's providence. Leading your way every step of the way. Every minute. Every second of the day. He's with you. The abiding Spirit. And He guides you. And how is it expressed with a conversation? 
Jacob does not impose upon his wives. So men, listen carefully. You are the head of the family. When you go before for your personal judgment, God will require of you the fate of your family. Were you a teacher of the faith? If not by words, at least by action. Did you pray and teach your kids to pray? Have you led your wife along the path of sanctity? Have you been devoted to the word of God? Have you read it? Do you read the encyclicals of the church? Do not pass those things lightly. They are required of you. You will be called to render judgment upon those things before all else. Why? Because of the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. How do you love the God with all your mind? If you don't know who He is, if you don't spend time learning about Him. The first commandment, most important. But as the head of the family, you have to shepherd your family gently along the way. And that means you need to listen to your wife to take her input in every matter, in all matters. Always remembering at the end of the day, God has a charge on your shoulders that is, in a sense, greater than that of your wife. You are called responsible before her. He talks to them. And this is what he said. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. What is he saying? First he states the case. Here is the situation. He doesn't look at me with favor. Meaning we are in danger. I am in danger. Because I'm dependent on him. Translation. He's about to fire me. Or worse. But then what does he what does he add? But the God of my Father has been with me. Right? So whatever he says, he's couching back into a conversation with God. Honey, there is a chance I'm going to be laid off. But don't worry. God will help me find another job. That's what he's saying. And notice, he sent... And called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. Why? He's being very careful because he knows that he, doesn't, he needs to pr protect this conversation. Having his wives come to him while he's taking care of the flock is natural. It's normal. And only the two wives, not the concubines, are present. Now, as to the whole social justice around this, it's a completely different matter. Be it as it may, he brings his two wives to him. And then he has this conversation with them very carefully, very prudently. And he tells them, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. All along, his Laban has changed his wages ten times. Laban has been unjust with him. So often you may have a boss who is not just with you. He's unjust. He's not right. Do you serve him with all your strength? That is required of you. 
There is a book um, written by a priest, and I forgot the name of the priest. He passed away now. But the title of the book is, um, He Leadeth Me. He Leadeth Me. And uh, you might still be able to find it on, uh, on, uh, on the net. And it's really worth reading. It's written by a priest who um, went to communist Russia when Russia was still communist USSR and was caught. He wanted to go and evangelize and he was caught. And spent seven years in solitary confinement and after that they sent him to Siberia where he spent 20 years in the Gulag. And while he was there, they had to work on the things that he had, they had to do, essentially um, pave roads in really harsh conditions. And he would give 100% of himself to the task of paving a road. And people would ask him, well, why are you doing this? Why are you serving these people so well? And he'd always answer, because God demands it of me in conversation with God. He could see through the communists the will of God enacted. He never doubted that God was always in charge and that God was leading him. Eventually, after 25 years, there was an exchange that happened and he was freed and came back here in the United States. And he died about, uh, I, think, I think, about nine or ten years ago. He was serving him with all his strength. Many of us can find ourselves in situations where we're dealing with people we simply don't like. And we can have a laundry list of things to say about them or against them. Does it really matter in the end? Yes, it does, because somebody is keeping tab. And somebody will bring all those things back at you when you will go for your personal judgment. As, uh, as Legolas says in The Lord of the Rings, there is a sleepless malice that constantly watches. A sleepless malice. That's what you're contending with. I have served your father with all my strength that your father has cheated me and changed my ways ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. What a life of faith Jacob had to live for 20 years. He served Laban 14 years for his two daughters and 6 years for his flock. 20 years with his, with his life on, his, on the palm of his hand, so to speak. Always in danger. Never in security. That's the life he led. But why do you think God allowed him to lead this life for 20 years? What is he trying to say to us? Well, Jesus told us, my kingdom is not of this world. Lord, I send them into the world even though they are not of the world. If your life is full of anxieties or concerns or troubles or problems or difficulties, if things don't fall on quite well, if you haven't yet reached that point where you feel that your life is secure and you're contented and everything is in its good spot, Rejoice. You're in good company. On the other hand, if you live a contented life and you feel completely at peace and you're very happy, then fear. Because you are in danger. 
For none of the saints lived like that. Our Lord Himself didn't live like this. Saint Peter, Saint Paul, all the saints had trouble to no end. The reason why Jacob lives like this is because God wants us, as we meditate on his life, to see our own. And if we don't see our own life in his, we have serious problems. And also to make us clearly understand what is it to mean to follow him. If it is the thought that we follow Jesus and then we are healthy and wealthy and everything is going to be just fine. That is not the call of Jesus. You wish to follow me? Take up your cross. There you go. So if your life is full of trouble, rejoice. It's supposed to be full of trouble. The question you have to ask yourself is, have I used this treasure, the troubles, wisely? Have I grown in the love of God? That's the question you have to ask yourself. The fact, the question is, essentially the question implied by this comment is, does this mean that you're going to live your life sulking and sad and annoyed and annoying? No. Paradoxically, if you live, if you take on this treasure of trouble that comes your way, and you take it on the right way, you carry your cross... I've spoken earlier about the Holy Spirit, how He does not abandon you. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, you receive true joy. And therefore, all the saints are very joyful people. Very joyful people. So no, I don't mean by this that you're going to be depressed. Or, you know, walk along with a long face and just moan and, and rant and groan and complain. Quite the opposite. So thank you for the clarification. It isn't the, the troubles that come our way do not win over our peace that comes from the Lord. It is stronger. Why? Because it has conquered the world. My point that I'm trying to make is that if you have trouble in your life, Understand that they are the way by which God speaks to you. God tells you that He loves you by sending you trouble. Isn't that strange? Can I solve the problem? Can I solve the problem with the will of God and the help of God and then be happy and peaceful? Yes, you can solve the problem with the will of God and the strength of God. And you may be happy or peaceful, but there's something even more important you would have grown closer to Him. Right? You would have grown closer to Him. That's the key. Because through all these troubles, God makes us discover His face. We see the face of Jesus through those troubles. You have to have peace inside that you can solve the outside. Yes, you have to have peace, but I want to, be, I want to caution you on this business of peace. Right? I don't have much time right now to, to, go, to delve too deeply into it. The key is that sometimes some people may be troubled inside. They may not have that peace. It does not mean that God has abandoned them. In fact, it might mean that He's deepening their faith 
well beyond the norm. So, for instance, Mother Teresa, towards the end of her life, or St. Teresa, little child Jesus, right? Or some of the greatest saints, St. Francis, lost their peace completely. They had no peace. But it does not mean that God had abandoned them. It was the, quite the opposite. For them, it means he was making them real sharer in his agony. Our Lady, before the cross, was not at peace. Her heart was pierced by a sword. She was not at peace. But that, that was her greatest moment of triumph. So be careful with that. Too often we, we use that as sort of the measuring rod of whether we're doing God's will or not. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The key are the facts. Am I listening to His Word? Am I spending time in prayer? Am I examining my conscience? Am I trying to live a godly life? Am I trying to learn my faith? Am I trying to communicate my faith? Am I taking care of the poor, the needy, the hungry, those around me? Am I doing all these things? If I am, those are the fruits of my spiritual life. If I'm not, I'm deluding myself. No. A very good question. What, you just, what you're just presented right now is a, a very common thought among uh, some of the Protestants. It's really called the health and wealth gospel. In their minds, if you take a country which is poor, right? in their mind, obviously the people are away from God because they have trouble and they're poor. How could God be with them? If God loves you, God will bless you and give you all the blessings you need and you'll be happy. That's their understanding. And nothing could be further from the truth. God does indeed send trouble your way. And thank God that He does. Because without that trouble that God sends you, you will never discover who you are. You will never discover how much you need Him and call upon His name. It is only when you become truly powerless that you discover the power of God. Up until this point, you're still dependent on yourself. And therefore, this pride prevents you from really leaning upon Him. He said, our Lord said, Without me, you can do nothing. And I would dare say that 99.99% of all devout Catholics do not believe that statement. They do not believe it. They do not believe that they need God to brush their hair. They do not believe they need God to brush their teeth. If you have a father that loves you, and he sees that you made a mistake, will he stay unengaged, or will he be involved? If you have a father that loves you, and he knows, I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking about somebody, I'm going to take my usual example, the five-year willful stubborn little boy. And this father knows that this little boy has just discovered chewing gum. And there is a pack of chewing gum sitting on the, on the, on the cupboard, and he's... He's eyeing it. He tells him, don't touch it. He already knows he's going to go after it. He knows that. What is the right thing to do? Let him do it. Let trouble come his way. He needs to learn. This is not our resting place. This life is not our resting place. This is a place where we come to know that we have been adopted by God, that we become His children and show Him Love, obedience. That's what this whole place is all about. Therefore, if God truly loves us, He will give us as many occasions as possible 
to discover this truth. Yes. God did not tell the child explicitly, go get the gum. But God being who he is, and Jesus himself telling us, not one hair from your head will fall on the ground that your father does not know about. Meaning, everything from the very beginning of time until the consummation of time has been ordained by God. And you're hitting upon a very difficult and at the same time not really important subject, which is predetermination versus free will. Is everything predetermined by God? The answer is yes. Do we have free will? Do we choose, do we choose freely? The answer is yes. How do you reconcile the two? We don't know. But both are true. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is that the events that happen in your life, losing a job, or having to move, or being laid off, all those events are God's way of talking to us. Yes, He allows, and sometimes He requires them. Why is it that God allowed St. Padre Pio to be tormented by the devil? Why? Why is it that God allowed the church to err in the case of St. Padre Pio in the judgment the Vatican made and ask him to be, remain silent for 10 years, not hearing confession and not celebrating Mass in public? God was sending him trouble. Why? Because he knew that through this, he will make him a much greater saint. If God loves you, he'll send trouble your way. Because it is through trouble that we grow in sanctity. Look at it this way. Nobody becomes a saint by winning the loto. Nobody. Nobody becomes a saint by having a comfortable life. Living in a palace. God will give you what you need. If he's truly merciful, he will give you what you need when you need it. If by prosperity you understand having comfort in this world then it contradicts the words of Jesus himself. Okay? Why? Because we are not of this world. Therefore, don't seek comfort here. You will be disappointed. This world is only passing. Your comfort is in heaven. That's what you should be seeking. Our Lady told St. Bernadette, I promise to make you happy, but not in this world. And on and on the examples go. The problem is that we are too weak before comfort. We are too weak before wealth. We are too weak before money. We are weak. And we don't realize how weak we are. And as soon as we get those things, what happens? We tend to attach ourselves to the things over the giver of the things. You're absolutely correct. So the point I'm trying to make, both to, to, to both your point, say, when, when I... When I spoke to Mother Teresa and I asked her the question, does this mean everybody should go do what you're doing? And her answer was, if God puts you in a palace, live in the palace. If God puts you in a tent, live in a tent. In both cases, be happy about it. What is, her, what is the key word here? If God puts you in the palace, it means He has a mission for you to complete, and in your case, you may not be affected by any of the riches in the palace. And he knows that, so he gives it to you. Right? But be very careful with, with thinking or equating, equating um, 
a satisfactory life. I'm a millionaire. I have all the money I want. I have all the cars I want. I have everything I need materially. Therefore, God has blessed me. All too, all too often, I'm not passing judgment here, so I don't know, but, but all too often, it is the opposite. And the reason why God will give sometimes to those who do not believe the material blessings is because He loves them. And they are so weak and wretched that He needs to give them something to keep them from completely going away from Him. But to those who loves Him, He starts giving them the essential, the spiritual blessing. How do we know that? Look at what is going on here. To Abraham, he gave a small patch of land. To Isaac, I mean. He gave a small patch of land that wasn't very rich. To um, Ishmael, he gave a huge patch of land. Huge. Why? Because to Isaac, he gave a small patch of land sufficient for prayers and sacrifice. But to Ishmael, he gave wealth. And that's the general rule. He gives him wealth in the hope that one day he will seek that which is really important. Like the rich man when he spoke to him. He told the rich man, not Nicodemus who was also rich. He didn't tell Nicodemus, he only told the rich man. You need to do one more thing. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. And then you will have eternal life. Only the rich man. Nicodemus was just as rich. But the Nicodemus never told him that. Only the rich man. And the rich man went away sad because he had much possessions. That's what we have to beware from. I would say to you, if God gives you riches, understand the cross he laid on your shoulders. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. So in all cases, it's a burden, no matter how you look at it. It will always be a burden. God gives us those burdens, these crosses He sends our way, so that we come back to Him. And understand the extent of the hardness of our heart. And that's why He has to keep on poking us all the time, continuously. Otherwise, we drift away. It's easy to... to, to it is very easy to lose the faith. Very easy. It is not hard. None of us here is guaranteed in place in heaven. None of us. If we don't try every day, there's no guarantee. And then he shows them how God was with him. And in his case, how God enriched him greatly and gave him all the material wealth. So notice, he gave Jacob all material wealth. But there was a fundamental reason for this. This, in his case, was what he needed to be able to survive. So all God will always give us what we need. That's the point I was making earlier. He will always give us what we need. But Jacob now has a whole now a group of people in his charge. He is now responsible for their welfare. He has to take care of them. And his decisions impact not just his wives and his children, but all the people who now work with him. <clears throat> In verse 13, God tells him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. 
Notice how God now um, makes himself known through a place. I am the God of Bethel. It is the place, Bethel, where uh, um, Jacob anointed that pillar some chapters away. Remember, Bethel, Beit El, the house of God. I am the God of the house of God. Right. So he makes himself known through a place, which is why we have shrines. This was a shrine. And God was saying, I am, I am the God of that place. There is now a link between God and this place. And in our cases, there are shrines where God is specifically present. Our Lady is specifically present. Now arise, go forth from this land, and return to the land of your birth. And then Rachel and Leah answered him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has been using up the money given for us. All the property which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. The arguments that Leah and Rachel bring to bear are not, first, oh, God said it, let's do it. Because this God of Jacob isn't yet their God. You notice? They have not yet known who this God is. They don't know the God of Jacob. Their argument is made out of common sense. We are regarded as foreigners in our father's house. There is nothing left for us. And presumably, both of them are speaking out of bitterness because <clears throat> Laban used them, literally used them, in order to secure the service of Jacob. And as I said earlier, nothing is forgotten. Nothing of what we say, nothing of what we do is forgotten. So even though Laban had done this 20 years before, it was never forgotten by Rachel and Leah. Had he been nice to his daughters and treated them rightfully, Jacob may never have left. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all his cattle and his livestock which he has gained, the cattle in his possession which he has acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. So, in the business of shearing the sheep, um, it, it is um, worth quoting the following. Sheep shearing in Mesopotamia was carried out in the spring. It entailed much hard work on the part of a large number of men who often had to labor at a considerable distance from their homes for extended periods of time. Mesopotamian documents from the 18th century BC refer to severe labor shortages on such occasions. In one case, a gang of a thousand men were said to be insufficient. One letter from the Mari archives records the need for 300 to 400 men for a period of three days, while another states that the shearing, of, the shearing would have to take as long as a week and a half due to rains and an inadequate labor force. So the fact that they were able to assemble and escape while they're shearing the sheep is explained by the very difficult toil that this uh, requires. And they would not do it right where they live, but they have to push ahead three or four days away and do the shearing of the sheep and take care of this business. And so during this time, 
they make their escape. But then when Laban on the third day knew that, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days. And then he caught up with him in the country of Gilead. Three and seven in this case are probably symbolic for a simple reason. The distance from um, the, the territory of Laban all the way to Gilead is about 400 miles. And for them to make 400 miles in seven days is almost impossible given that they have wives, I mean, women, children, and large flock. Typically, the distance traveled uh, during one day is about six or um, seven miles a day. So the fact that they chose three and seven is highly symbolic. And obviously, seven always reminds us of the covenant. And that here, there is a break of the covenant that is going to happen because from the very beginning... Jacob had been faithful to the covenant he had entered with, with, uh, with Laban. He had served him 14 years for his wives and 6 years for the flock. And he served him faithfully. And yet, even then, Laban determines that it is his possession. And so he pursues him. But then God came to Laban in a dream by night and said to him, Take heed that you say not a word to Jacob, either good or bad. By this it is meant, take heed not to harm him. And that's, again, another example why we must be very careful with those dreams. And even when God does indeed speak to us in a dream, it does not follow that it is a sign of our holiness. The fact that God spoke to Laban in a dream certainly is not an indication that Laban is a holy man. He is a wicked man. And yet God spoke to him. So be very careful not to fall in, those, in this trap of, oh, I had a dream, our lady appeared to me, or my mother appeared to me, or whatever. And then conclude, therefore, that whatever. You'd be much better served if you brought this to a, a holy priest in confession and let him tell you what to do with it before you share it with anybody before we share with anybody. So then he doesn't harm him, but then notice the tone. There is much we can learn from this. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have cheated me and carried away my daughters like captives of the sword? Cheated me. How did he cheat him? He took what was his own, that which was agreed upon took away my daughters like captives, they're my wives. And from the prior conversation, you know that he had asked them and they agreed with him to go. Notice how hasty the accusation comes. No verification. It's unfounded. There is no basis for it. Why did you flee secretly and cheat me, second time, and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Every tyrant wants to be, a, be looked upon as a savior. Every tyrant. You'll notice, billionaires have foundations. They do much good through their foundations. Every tyrant wants to look upon as somebody who is the savior. It's embedded. They demand 
to be recognized as such. Whereas more sa- most saints, well, actually all the saints, you go to them and you tell them, wow, how great you are, and their answer is, God is great, I'm a sinner. Difference in attitude. Where are we on that continuum when people come to us and talk to us? And it's in those little things that you will know. The little things. If your wife asks you to do the dishes or turn off the TV when you're in the middle of a game and she wants to talk to you or if somebody calls you and you really don't like this person they're kind of weird and a little bit um, you know, nerdy they're not socially cool but I want to talk to you how do you react? That's how you know. That's how you know where you stand on this continuum. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. The world will always accuse us of looking foolish. And oftentimes, if you're having a conversation with somebody about the faith, God does permit it that you lose your arguments. You don't know what to say. You try. You were so sure of yourself, you start the conversation, and this person dismisses all your arguments, like they're a little bit of a f- couple of flies in the air, and you're, you're, you're searching for your words, you don't know what to say, and you feel both embarrassed and frustrated. And then you go home, and you're almost preparing round two of this boxing match. But what God is trying to tell you, this is not my way. I don't work this way. You've got to recognize you do not convert anybody. You do not touch the heart of anybody. You do not bring the truth to anybody. I do it. You need to get out of the way. Let me do what I have to do. And sometimes he simply and plainly does not want you to touch the heart of this person. He has other plans. You see what I'm saying? We immediately take control of the situation. We think we know exactly what we have to do. And we know what the outcome should be and what the result ought to be. And it doesn't come to our way. We're upset. We've already determined. We are God. We know exactly how it's going to be. We don't even realize how many sins we're committing and lack of charity, lack of humility, lack of wisdom, lack of understanding, lack of love of God. We display all those things in one shot. We're not even aware of it. But God loves us and He's patient. And He allows those things to happen so that we can see ourselves and go, whoops, I messed up. And He'll say, that's okay. Now go on and try to do better next time. You are in my friendship. I'm allowing this to happen because I care for you. That's what he says. Very good question. What do you do? There was a CCC cartoon on St. Nicholas. And in that CCC cartoon on St. Nicholas, Life of St. Nicholas, towards the end of the cartoon, when St. Nicholas is freed from jail, and a centurion that had jailed him is thrown in jail, as he's leaving out, the centurion tells him, well, anyhow, nobody cares about you, Jesus, anymore. And St. Nicholas walks down and finds a little wooden cross that was thrown away from him and was in the, in the prison. It was still there. He picks it up, looks at the cross, and he says, Well, 
Jesus, if nobody else loves you, I love you. And that was the core of his joy. It wasn't whether others loved him or not. That was secondary to his joy. His joy was in his love to his Lord. Do you understand? Think of Our Lady when she stands and she watches this is happening. Right? How would she react? So, when you hear people attacking the Catholic faith in front of you, the first thing you do is you pray for them. Hail Mary, full of grace. Pray for them. Before thinking about defending or, or explaining, just pray for them. They don't realize what is going to be heaped upon their head for their personal judgment. You should be very afraid for them. They don't realize. It is scary. St. Paul tells us, it is scary to face the Lord. It's going to be a terrible moment for them. So pray. And think that maybe God put you right there for you to pray. And that's all you wanted. And that's it. The second thing is that if what they say causes you pause and ponder, and you are shaken, then that's where you have to go and deepen your faith, if that's happening to you. The third thing, you need to ask yourself, am I being upset out of a sense of righteousness? Because I want them to show how I am right and they're wrong. Or am I upset because I fear the, the eternal punishment of hell for them? Those are what you have to ask. And then, if that's the case, you ask your guardian angel, should I speak? If so, make it possible. And then you wait. And see what happens. And sometimes, you'll be given to, to speak, and sometimes you won't. But now, you've shown yourself to be a true, obedient daughter of Jesus Christ. You leave the, matters, the matter in His hand. You did what He wanted you to do. Maybe all He wanted was for you to say three Hail Marys for them. And that might save their souls much later. You don't know that. You understand? Don't be upset or riled up because people are saying those things. Rather, try to be sad. Because they don't, they don't know. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay? So, he continues. Now that he told him, you've been completely foolish, it is in my power. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, take heed that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Right? So therefore, I'm not going to hurt you because God spoke to me. But it is my power, but God spoke to me. And now you have gone away because you long greatly to your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? So he left that to the end, wishing to show him that he's wrong. He absolutely wants to position Jacob in the, in the chair of the guilty. You did something wrong. First, you left and you took my daughters captive. Then you cheat me because I couldn't send you away and show you how generous I am. You also cheat me because I couldn't kiss them goodbye. You've been foolish. 
I'm much stronger than you anyhow. And you stole my, and you're a thief. Jacob answered Laban. Notice, he answered him truthfully. Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Probably true. Probably true. Then he goes straight to the matter. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Because he has no, no knowledge that Rachel stole those gods. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. He widens it. In the mind, mind of Jacob, he doesn't see that um, Laban is accusing him of stealing the gods only. He, he sees it as an excuse for Laban to accuse him of stealing much more. So he widens it. He said, right, go look and find and see if there's anything that is yours. As St. Therese of Little Child Jesus used to say, the world would make us saints faster than the church. What did she mean by that? When the world see you trying to live an upright life, they're very good at pointing out all your defects. Well, if the church is holy, how come you have all these priests doing this and that and the other? Well, if you Catholics are this and that and the other, how come you do this? And how come you can't control your temper? How come you... That's tyranny. There is no space for mistake. In the minds of the world, sanctity is tyranny. It is this sort of cold perfection that is utterly heartless and leaves no space for weakness. God is not like that. God wants us to be perfect. He knows our weaknesses. And He's very patient with us. Very patient. He knows we're going to fall the first time and the second time and the 2,000th time and the 4,000th time. And He stays with us because He loves us. Just as you, as fathers and mothers and brothers, would see someone you love failing, you don't give up on them. You keep loving them. That's the difference between the way God sees things and the world sees things. So they searched and couldn't find anything. Uh, one point about the camel saddle. Uh, there are depictions from um, the second millennium before Christ of uh, travelers on camel's back. And you see them sitting on a box, literally. It's a box they put there, which serves as a seat, but also as a container. And that's why she hid those gods. And basically told her father, I can't get up because of uh, the menstrual cycle. Now, in all of the um, ancient world, within, around this area, I'm not including you know, the Americas, for instance. In, in, in those areas, whether Babylonian or Assyrian or, or uh, uh, Israelite, or uh, Egyptian, uh, the menstrual cycle was seen as unclean. In fact, in some cases, they thought that the woman was being possessed by evil spirits because they just could not understand why this is happening. Why is there this letting go of blood, which is life? Why is the woman losing life? They couldn't think of it as something um, good. They didn't understand what it was, so they ascribed to it that meaning. So as soon as she said that, he would not come close to her. Which 
then makes us think, some of the Jewish commentators, rabbis, would say that the fact that she put those gods under her when she sat, and she was going through the cycle, is an indication that she had contempt toward those gods. And she essentially stole them simply to spite him. Not because she put much uh, uh, creed in them. It is possible. It is also possible that she stole them because she trusted those gods. It's hard to say. In both instances, she was wrong. She was guilty. She should not have taken what was not hers. It's a theft. And that is going to come back later. And so Jacob now tell, tells him, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Notice now that he is given a moment of defense. God gave it to him. See? Although you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your she-goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, even though the laws of ancient, the ancient world stipulated that if a shepherd watching um, a herd, and if, let's say, uh, wild animals come and attack the, she, uh, the, the herd and kill some of the sheep, the shepherd is not to be held responsible. You can take that away from his wages. That was well established and well known. That's why he's pointing out to him, even in that case, you held it against me. You took it away from me. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Key in on this verse. God saw my afflictions and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. It is through the affliction and the labor of the hands of Jacob that Laban comes to know about God. Notice the grace that Laban is given that God would speak to him in a dream. Unlike any of the other gods, he comes to know about the true God through what? The afflictions and the labor of Jacob. It is the prayer of the one that saves the other, or offers means of salvation for the other. It is the afflictions of one that become means of salvation for other. You don't know how your suffering, your pain, your labor, your difficulties, your frustration, are, how are they used by God right now in Haiti or somewhere else to save a soul. You don't know that, but that does not mean it's not happening. Because in the eyes of God, we're brothers and sisters. And so, Laban now concedes his point, and they make a covenant. Effectively, he's agreeing to treat Jacob as completely separate from him, as a separate entity, and he is now, um, he's lost his uh, his. Uh, his point, he can't now make Jacob come back to him. And they establish this covenant between them, which is very carefully drawn. It is important in the history of Israel because by the time that the, um, 
by the time that Israel establishes itself, there is ongoing strife between the two nations. Constant. So it's a reminder that a covenant was established. That there was an understanding between the two people that I will not cross past that line to you. You will not cross back to me. And so, notice how God allows the resolution of the situation without bloodshed. Had Jacob not been obedient, had Jacob not been accepting of all these tribulations, and all the trouble, and all the difficulties, and patient, for all these years, looking like the loser, I mean, try to appreciate the man. For 20 years, he looked like a loser. We can't bear to look like a loser for five minutes amongst friends. For 20 years, he looked like the loser. But in the end, it was never God's intention for him to make him the winner, and crush Laban. His intention was that through all of this, the knowledge of the true God would come to Laban. In a way that Jacob could never have imagined. In a way that Jacob could never have controlled. God came in a dream to Laban. Do not feel afflicted if you think you're on the losing end of something. And by the way, we are all on the losing end of life, aren't we? We're all going to die. Okay? So from the devil's perspective, we're all losers. We're all going to die. None of us is going to live forever here. God puts ahead of you things that you're going to lose. So that you can have something to offer up. I know it's very counterintuitive. It's not how the world wants us to function. So what is the fundamental attitude we should have in closing? The ideal, and I know it's really hard for all of us to achieve, but the ideal is what St. John of the Cross, who's doctor of mystical theology, calls the state of holy indifference. It's a very... Um, might be confusing term, but it's the state of holy indifference. And what he means by that is that we must be accepting of all that comes to us as from the hand of God and be indifferent as to the outcome. Now, that is a very difficult thing to do, my friends. It is a very different thing to be indifferent whether your children live or die. He means that. Be indifferent whether you're in health or you're sick. Be indifferent whether the world survives or not. I'm talking about St. John of the Cross. Doctor of the Church. Doctor of Mystical Theology. The only saint I know who stated that as you advance in your spiritual life, you reach a point where you cannot lose your salvation anymore. Because that's, that happened to him. In a very short life, he was able to reach the summit of the union of love with Jesus Christ. 
And so the indifference that he's talking about isn't what do we mean by indifferent. This indifference is infused with the love of God. It is the indifference of one who is so much in love that nothing else matters. That's what he's talking about. If our relationship with Jesus Christ was to reach that kind of intensity and fervor and depth, where we look at him and see him and see no one else, nothing else would truly matter. And then, the paradoxical corollary, everything begins to matter. Because we see it from the, through the eyes of Jesus. So we are not sad if somebody dies. We're sad if somebody... Let me correct that. We're not afflicted if somebody dies. We may be sad because of the separation, which is normal. We're not afflicted if they die. We may be afflicted if they're going to hell. We're not afflicted by material loss. We're afflicted if we cannot grow in holiness because of the material loss. We do things differently. We see things differently. We live differently. Once we become indifferent to the world and only paying attention to Jesus. That's the ideal. This is how Jacob was able to, to, to hold himself for 20 years. And he set as an example for us today. That is the call for you and me. God bless you. All right, questions? Yes, right. Very good point. I was hoping somebody would bring it up. When we go to confession and we confess our sins, those will not be held against us. They've been forgiven. That is the great mercy of our Lord. And that's why it's important for us to avail ourselves of the ministry of confession very regularly. And my rule of thumb to you is the following. If you, whatever you've been doing up to this point, double it. So if you're going once a year, go twice. If you're going twice, go four times. And so on and so forth. Work your way up until you can go once a week. Because we need it. Unless you go once a week, you will not be sharpening your mind to examine your conscience and see all the things that you need to bring, bring up. Yes. Can you be indifferent for the status of your kids for their eternal life? Um, we have to be careful with the meaning of the word indifferent. The way St. John uses it, and I'm, again, I'm going to repeat it again, being very, very careful, is not what we mean by indifferent, which typically is lukewarmness. So, let's say you're watching something on the TV going on, you know, people dying in Haiti, and you just yawn, turn on the TV, move on to sports or whatever. That is not what St. John has in mind. You understand? What he has in mind is the full and complete acceptance of God's will. And that his will is always good, and his will is always just, and his will is the source of our perfection and our happiness. That's what he means. So therefore, in that context... When I pray for, let's say, my children, I pray knowing that God's will will be done and I accept His will. All too often, we pray with preconditions. 
right? which is, I'm praying that my kids will go to heaven and God, don't you ever dare say no. You see, that's the twist that we have to free ourselves from. His will be done. Right? That's what is really essential. And in fact, if you are able to reach that kind of um, detachment, when someone dies, it is not as traumatic as it is for many people. In many cases, the separation of death, the, the suffering we endure, is also due to ourselves. Because we are overly attached. Whereas when we are attached truly to the will of God, then God allows this relationship with the other to be very enjoyable, very peaceful, yet never to have this bite to it when it comes to the end. When it dissolves, there is sadness, obviously. There are tears shed, obviously. There is, a, um, um, on the one hand, the desire to see the person. On the other hand, hopefully, the, I mean, the hope that this person made it to heaven. And then there is the hope that we're going to see him again. So all of that colors it with charity and makes it far more endurable and livable than when we go through these separations without that understanding of the relationship that we have to others. Make sense? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that interesting, the strangest ways in which God comes to you? So when somebody comes to you and says this, this is Jesus talking to you. This is Him. So He tells you, you're inspirational. The first thing you need to say, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? Before you even think about answering anything, you must ponder it in your heart. Remember, Our Lady and St. Joseph looked for Jesus, couldn't find Him, found Him in the temple. Son, why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I were searching for you, sorrowing. That's the right word used, sorrowing. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm really sorry. Because, no. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know I, should be, I, I must be in my father's house? Our lady didn't answer. She, she didn't understand. St. Luke tells us, and probably because she told him. She did not understand. But she pondered those words in her heart. So when someone comes to you and says something you don't understand, not the time to speak. You might say, thank you. If he has a question to you, let me get back to you on that. And then ponder it. See the meaning behind it. Lord, is it your will that I speak? Should I? Should I not? And if I, I should, what must I say? Maybe it's a time to ask more questions. What do you find so inspirational? Maybe it's a time to hear from the other. Maybe that is the opening through which you might bring the, the light of grace. Maybe it's only prayer. You don't know. Do you understand? But God will always come to you in unsettling ways. He does that. Very often. To help us ponder. Yeah? Yes? Oh, absolutely. There is transformation in Jacob. There is a very deep transformation that goes on. And scripture typically tends to remain silent on it. And not only in the case of Jacob. In most cases, scripture does not spend much time telling us about the transformation that they go through. We are going to see it most dramatically in Joseph. 
And scripture is always silent. Why is scripture always silent? Because it is left to those who ponder in the silence of their heart to discover those things. That's why. Because scripture isn't just a book. It's a conversation with God. It's a conversation with the Holy Spirit. So when you open this book and you read this passage again, and here you are conversing with the Holy Spirit, and you say, how come Jacob didn't do this and that and the other? God illuminates your mind and gives you those answers that you need for your life. That's how He works. That's why those things are kept secret. I thank Thee, Father, that You have not revealed those things to the learned and the wise. But you have kept them for the little ones. Right? That's how we come to discover those things. But definitely there's growth. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a good point you're bringing back up. And I thank you for bringing it. Because it is kind of complicated. Because on one hand, I'm, I'm, it seems I'm saying don't do it. On the other hand, I'm, I'm saying do it. Which is it? It's both. So how do you do both? How do you do it without doing it? How do you do it without doing it? When you... Well, yes, by example, but also when you do it, realizing it's the Lord doing it in you. Therefore, you have, to have, you have to be in conversation with the Lord. So, example. He puts in your mind the desire to teach your children about the faith. Lord, what is the best way? Show me. Okay. What should I be teaching them about? How should I do this? Ponder it. All too often what happens is that we just do the whole thing. And there's no space for Him. We think we know. From A to Z, this is how we're going to do it. Most of the time we don't. Maybe in the heart of, uh, if you had a boy, let's say, or a girl, but not you, I'm just talking in general. Maybe there's a hurt. Maybe there's something that's bothering them, which precludes them from listening to what you want to tell them. That needs to be addressed first. You may not know that. God knows. You let Him do it through you. But unless you enter in conversation with Him, and you are careful to ask Him, to ponder, to see, to listen, to take in what the children are saying, how they're reacting into consideration, you're only doing it by yourself. So, you have to do it, but you don't do it. He does it through you. Make sense? Right. And it could be that you may not be able to make them realize. It may not be for you. If absolutely, it's okay. Absolutely, it's okay, provided it's well received. Because remember, what? Let me tell you something that will scare you a little bit. But it's something people don't think about. Sometimes, even for children, God will use your words for judgment, not for salvation. Do you realize that? Nothing is lost. The words you speak that is not well received, if it is spurned, will be used for, 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 for judgment. Your mother told you, you did not listen. That's what I'm saying. You have to ponder, what is God doing here? What, he, what does He want to do? We always assume that we know. Our kids are going to, everybody's going to heaven. We take that for granted. And therefore we skew everything in this direction. But if we don't, if we say, I, I, okay, I am afraid for my children that may go to hell. Lord, you have the word of eternal life. You can save them. 
What must we do? Remember, St. Paul was never given the occasion to go and preach to the Jews, his own people. Never. He was sent to the Gentiles. He could never speak to the people he wanted to speak most to. It may not be you, but through your prayers, it may be somebody else who might touch their heart. Or it could be you. I don't know. That is why I'm saying to you, pondering, reflecting, understanding God's will is very important, foremost, before you take on any action. And then see the fruits. If they listen to you, great. If they're not listening to you, you need to think for further what to do next. Yes? You had a question? Exactly, exactly. This is, it's a very good point. We don't know. And they may never come to this Bible study. Maybe some other thing that might, you know, that might touch their heart. Prayer is always paramount. But also, always, always, always um, looking at our own intentions. You know, the Psalms are a wonderful vehicle for that. David in the Psalms always is telling God, look at my intentions. I really wanted to do your will. Can we say that every time? If, we have, if we're pure of heart, if our intentions are in the right spot, then we are at peace. More we cannot do. Right? But are we doing it because we want to show them we're right? Are we doing it because we want them to do what we want them to do? There's all these other things that we need to purify. And sometimes God in His love for us um, prevents us from touching the people we want to touch for these reasons. And the suffering that we bear because they're not listening to us serves really well in other cases, but we don't know where. Yeah? Yes. Very good question. If God gives you the opportunity to become rich, should you accept it or should you say, I feel that I'm weak and I don't want to go there? There is no one answer fits all. The, the real question is, God, is this your will for me? If it is, you will give me what I need to carry on. Okay? So, uh, Father Lebeke, for instance, had this prayer in which he would say, "If um, teach me your love, O my Lord, teach me your love. If you give me money, do not take my peace. And if you give me success, do not take my humility. Hmm? So, um, it could be that through someone who becomes uh, very wealthy, that this person is able to remain very detached from the wealth and uses it for the greater glory of God. Wonderful. Right? So, pondering, asking God what He wants, and showing you the way. And if He's opening that way for you, if after you've asked Him, if you told Him, if, this, if you tell Him, Lord, if this material wealth is going to take me away from you, I don't want it. That is a sure sign that you've stated your case very clearly. And God is not a deceiver. He will never give you to bear more than you can carry. So therefore, if He doesn't take it away, it's His will. The feeling, you, be, you have to be careful with it. Yes, the feel is a word that we should use very carefully. Because feelings are like the clouds. They come and go. Most people, when they say, I feel that... They should be saying, I think that. So the feelings, I'm always leery with the feelings. I hear them all too often. I feel that. 
you feel that that's fine. Tomorrow you may not feel that. What does that mean? I think what you're trying to say is that you have an intuition uh, that comes maybe from familiarity with God, that things are right. And yes, it is entirely possible to reach that state, provided that we are examining our conscience every day, that we know our faith so that we can examine it against the truth of the faith, and then we truly live a life that is in accord with God's will. Then our conscience becomes formed to where it becomes a second nature. And we know it really well. Yes, it is possible. But sometimes, if you look at the lives of the saints, it's not that obvious. God will, as a form of purification, send people spiritual trouble. Nothing seems right. In fact, you have a sense that you're completely abandoned by God, that you live in utter darkness, and there is nothing that can give you peace again. And sometimes it's for an extended period of time. So, the, the spiritual life is a tricky one. If you want to learn more about it, I truly recommend reading the first seven chapters, seven cha- the first seven chapters only to begin with, of the Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. It's a very, the first seven chapters are very accessible and there is much to be discovered from them and much to learn. And he explains what the soul undergoes as God leads the soul through the spiritual life. He does a very good job. Another one, obviously, is Introduction to the Devout Life right, by uh, St. Francis de Sales. Wonderful spiritual book that also leads one along the path of spiritual growth. It's not as easy as we might think. Sometimes very counterintuitive. But God is always trying to teach us His ways, which are so different from ours. And these books help tremendously, because they're written by masters. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.